Today's Yara will be reading Revelation 21.10 and 21.23-27. And I will be reading Revelation 22, verses 1-5. through 5. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the, lamb is the, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of earth will bring the splendor to it. On no day will its gate ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those who, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the, of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need light of a lamp or of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Happy Sabbath. There's one word that jumps out in this text, and that's what we're going to talk about today, commitment. Now, commitment is an all-or-nothing affair. If you're going to wear a clown suit, you get the wig, you get the nose, you get the big floppy shoes. It's a silly example, but it's a serious thing. Either you're in or you're out. Some people might say that if you are 90% committed, you're 100% uncommitted. I mean, think about it. I, I know that I don't want a spouse who will commit to 96% of our marriage. I know I don't want a doctor who promises to give me 90% proper medical care. Many people fear commitment. You know, this is a, this is a wonderful person. Uh, we have a, a, a beautiful, budding relationship, but I've got to keep my options open. I don't, I don't know what else is out there. You know, I'm, I, I'm not sure that I, I'm ready to commit to this uh, because there, there may be something better. I'm not ready for this responsibility. Unfortunately, the church is no different. Have you ever heard of church hopping? Hey, I, I, I hear that church has a phenomenal children's program. I hear this church over here has great preaching. I hear that church over there has a wonderful praise set and potluck. Maybe you do 
attend the same church, when you attend church, twice a month, once a month, every other month, or maybe we attend the same church every week, but we're more than happy to let someone else be the deacon, to let someone else sing in the choir, to let someone else teach Sabbath school. At some point in our Christian experience, we all face what is called the crisis of commitment. I use this term crisis not so much to harp on church involvement, but because a lack of commitment usually spills over into our life of faith. And when, our and when our commitment to God is uncertain, we are truly in a crisis situation. The church's commitment issues stem all the way back to the beginnings of Christian faith. All the way back to a group of churches in Asia Minor. We might even call them our first union conference. The, the, the first century Asian, Asia Minor union conference of Christian believers. A conference of churches pretty much on fire for God. A, a, a conference of churches mostly enthusiastic about their faith. A conference full of solid 95 to 98 percenters. Now they look good. But God pointed out that something was lacking. Interestingly, being 100% committed presents its own crisis. Yes, the first century church also had those who were steadfast and stayed strong in their faith, but their Jewish brothers and sisters, those who Jesus himself labeled as the synagogue of Satan, they constantly tried their Christian character and pushed those sanctified buttons. I mean, we all know these kind of people, you know, the, the, the ones who, who most often help us develop our Christian character. <laughs> Instead of supporting this church, these Jewish brothers and sisters rejected them. And when this happens that strong Christian character begins to wear down. Now to make matters worse, the church had to deal with the iron fist of the, of the Roman Empire, this, this government whose not so subtle imperial nudge caused the believers to have a, a shift in creed from Christ as Lord to Caesar as Lord. And one has to ask themselves the question, how does this play out? The options weren't great. Number one, you could reject your faith and serve the empire. Number two, you could rationalize the whole idea and say, oh, you know, the, the Romans, they don't understand Christianity. I'll just do what they say and I'll be a Christian in my heart. If one felt particularly valiant, Though outnumbered, they could fight the empire, fight the power, or the grand prize, face persecution and almost certain death. For some, 
It just wasn't worth the commitment. So with many members deserting and others partially excited and certain death as the only alternative, commitment to the church lost all attraction. Indeed, this first century conference was in need of pastoral care. Oh, and by the way, the author of Revelation, we know him as, as the Apostle John. Today, as a, as a church leader, we'll call him Pastor John. Now, Pastor John, he was the one who was responsible for this pastoral care, which would be fine, except for he had a little crisis of his own. You see, his commitment to the faith got him arrested and put in jail. The Pastor John route is not the encouraging model. I mean, look at what he did, and look at where it took him. Now, if I'm trying to stay out of prison, I don't want advice from someone who's put in prison. I know that Pastor John, you know, brought me into the faith, or, or I, I know that Pastor John encourages me in the past, and, and I know that Pastor John has told me that I need to stick with God, but I don't know if the words of a preaching prisoner are enough. Anyone ever felt that way? Anyone ever felt that you weren't getting enough in your Christian experience? You know, maybe that's how these first century believers felt. Maybe they just weren't getting enough. So then we ask the question, what's the, what's the secret? What are these magic words? What convicts us to commit? God only knows what can fix the problem. Wait. That's it. God knows. <laughs> yes, God knows. He knew that even more than turning from their mixture of doctrines and idol religion and immorality, even more than regaining this love and energy that they first had, God knew that his people needed a vision of victory. Where the law demanded emperor worship, they needed a vision that motivated God worship. Where the government threatened persecution, they needed a vision that promoted perseverance. Where the ruler promised death. They needed a vision that promised everlasting life. A vision of life that they had to reach even if it killed them. They definitely needed more than Pastor John's words. But praise God, when, when, when a preaching prisoner's words aren't enough, he can use God's words. When a preaching prisoner's vision falls a little short, he can use God's vision. And when our supply runs out, God has more than enough. We're reminded by another apostle that we heard from earlier today, Paul. And he reminds us that God will meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Jesus Christ. So God gave Pastor John the vision that his people needed. 
He gave him the vision that the people in Asia Minor needed. He gave a vision that the people today need. He gave a vision of struggle and triumph that culminated in a victorious reunion with him. God spelled out the undeniable gospel. And perhaps we need a taste of that gospel today. So, so, so here it is, the gospel spelled out. G, a good God giving gracious gifts, generating good grace from generation to generation. Oh, overcoming obstacles, overwhelming outcomes, omnidirectional outpourings of S, selfless sacrifice, sufficient to save a life, salvation sent solely through the sun. P, powerful prince of peace, putting down misery, promises prevailing permanently. E, energizing, ever rising, evangelizing, enterprising. L, gracious love, patient love, lifelong love. Is it all about love? Is it all about love? The answer to that question is yes. It is all about love. It's a dynamic love. A love that calls for action and a love that responds in action. If you remember the final hours before Jesus became this victorious lamb before he took on this victorious death. The Gospel of John records Jesus Christ talking, speaking with his friends about this love in action. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. In love, we experience God's responsive actions. And since actions speak louder than words, God's actions echo all the way from John to Revelation, where a loud voice says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God comes to us. In John's final vision, he describes the creator of the universe bringing his home down to us. God making his home among his people. Imagine what that looks like. The best episode of MTV Cribs ever, <laughs> ever. If you're not familiar with MTV Cribs, maybe as a TV connoisseur, you might be more familiar with a, a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Imagine what it looks like when God dwells among his people. John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And, 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 and oh, yes, you have to, I'm going to give you a little bit of slang here. God is bawling out of control, as the, as the young people say. He's, he's so fresh. He's so clean. He's got bling like you've never seen. It says here that he has gold, 
pearl, jasper, agate, emerald, sapphire, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, and amethyst. And I don't know about you, but that's new to me. I don't know people walking around with beryl and, and jacinth in their pockets. <laughs> and as the vision continues, we see God's throne. From it flows these crystal clear waters of life. On either side, this mighty trunk and these fruit-bearing branches and nation-healing leaves from the tree of life everywhere. Life. God makes his home among us. Imagine what that feels like. God hanging out with his peeps. His peeps, those whose prayers were held in incense around his throne. Those who, who cried out for him to avenge their wrongful tribulation. Those who come from every nation, every tongue, every people. Those who cried out to avenge their wrongful deaths. His peeps, the gas-paying, data-plan-paying, mortgage paying 21st century citizens who can appreciate no more crying. The miscarrying mother who can appreciate no more death. The arthritis-stricken senior, the blade-cutting teen, the abused child who can appreciate no more pain. The racially, socioeconomically, gender-oppressed individual who can appreciate no more discrimination. They will enter the city. No. We will enter the city. His peeps. The ones who receive the glory of his shining face and the honor of carrying his name. We will enter this city with nothing impure, nothing shameful, nothing deceitful. We won't need a temple. We won't need any sun or moon or any light, for the Lord God will be our light. We won't need anything, because Christ will be our everything. The vision is cast. Can you see it? Amen. A reading from the Gospel, Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 16. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace. 
And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who, gathered, who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. A dealer in purple cloth, she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling the word of the Lord. 